the American dream. That's one of the ethos of what it means to be here in America. One of the things that draws so many people from around the country or from around the world to this country is this promise of the American dream. Well, what is the American dream? Well, in summary, kind of the, the catalyst behind it is the belief, the ethos, that if you work hard enough, you can accomplish anything. There is no barrier in your life to achieve whatever you want. There is no caste system. There is no uh, uh, anything that's keeping you from moving here. And if you just pull up your bootstraps high enough, if your knuckles turn wide enough, then you too can do anything that you want. That sounds good. But listen, it doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm never going to dunk a basketball on that goal. It's not going to happen. And more than that, I worry that that kind of mentality has seeped its way even into our spiritual lives. That maybe even without knowing it, we can bring the same things over in our spiritual lives and go, you know what, if I just try hard enough, I bet I can kind of do anything. And we can rely on our strength. We can rely on our ability. Or we can rely on our competence that God has given us to be able to try to move this thing forward and try to control our lives. It's one of the great idols in our, uh, in our country is the idol of control. This idea that we want to have it all kind of controlled by us, our efforts. It begins to get out of control. Then we get to start, uh, we begin to get anxious. And uncertainty is the great demon of our country. We're not sure what's going to come. It's outside of our control, welling up uncertainty and fear in our lives we begin to see maybe the American dream isn't so true for our spiritual lives. If there's a question I want us to ask uh, this morning as we look at this text in particular, it comes down to the question of trust and reliance. The question is this, what do you rely on? What do you rely on in your life? You look to your future, look at your current life, look at your spiritual life. What do you rely on? Definition of that word rely is, is this, to depend on with full trust or confidence. What do you rely on? What do you have full trust in? What do you just, without a shadow of doubt, know that this is going to work out? I know when I walk into a movie theater that's made a Pixar movie or a Christopher Nolan film, I know it's going to be good. I've got full trust in those productions and that director. I just know it. There's a new Christopher Nolan movie coming out in a couple of years. I just know it's going to be good. Why? Because Christopher Nolan has shown over and over and over again, he makes great films. So another one's coming. I have full trust in Christopher Nolan. Pixar, full trust. They're going to make good movies. Apart from The Good Dinosaur, we already covered that a couple weeks ago. It was good, right? It was good. Not great. But apart from that, Pixar just continues to churn out original, uh, interesting movies, full trust and rely on them, knowing full confidence they're going to produce that product, partly because of their, uh, their abilities to do it time and time again in the past. Friends, what do you rely on? In your life, what do you have full trust in? What is your confidence in? We turn our eyes now to the passage we're looking at here at the last half of chapter 2. We see what Moses has his trust in, what he relies on. And as we look through this chapter here, verses 11 through 25 is where we'll be in Exodus chapter 2. 
If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers. So we'll be in Exodus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 25. So last week that the nation of Israel has moved to Egypt, grown in number. Pharaoh was concerned, so he enslaves this entire people and brings intense oppression even to the point of murdering every infant boy that is born, enlisting the entire country to do so. That's where our text leaves off. And in the midst of that, then, in the midst of that oppression, we see that there is one boy that is saved, this boy named Moses, who is saved out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And he's adopted then into Pharaoh's family. So there's a Hebrew boy, Moses, that's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And that's where our story picks up then in Moses' life. The real quick, Moses' life is divided into three equal sections. Moses lived 120 years. We see in other parts of the Bible. And he has three different portions of his life that last 40 years each. From zero to 40 is his time whenever he's in Egypt. He's then raised in Pharaoh's household. He is a prince of Egypt. But then we'll see something happens here, as Amy read, that makes him have to flee. And he then goes into the wilderness. And then he lives for 40 years in Midian. We don't get much of what happens in Midian apart from what we see here in this chapter. We see he finds a wife, family, there in the wilderness, becomes a shepherd. Then God calls him, next week we'll see in chapter 3, to then go from Midian back to Egypt to deliver his people, lead them through the wilderness, and lead them to the promised land. That's the last 40 years of Moses' life. So that's kind of the sections of Moses' life. And we'll see here, especially these first 80 years here today. And as we look at this text, I want us to ask three questions. I know I said we have one main question. Here's the three sub-questions. First, seeing in verses 11 through 15, asking what makes plans fail? What makes plans fail? Second, verses 16 to 22, ask the question, what makes people prepared? Finally, in verses 23 to 25, we'll ask the question, what makes all the difference? What makes plans fail? What makes people prepared? And what makes all the difference? First, what makes plans fail? We look at Moses and we get this description here in verses 11 through 15 of this prince that has grown up in Egypt. Again, Moses has authority, he has power, he has political leverage. He's the son of Pharaoh, the adopted grandson of Pharaoh, the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He's strong, right? He, he kills a man here with what seems like his bare hands. He's strong, he has compassion. See, over and over again in these texts, there's this heart that Moses has for his people that are experiencing injustice. He's compassionate, he's strong, he's poised. In fact, later in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr, describes Moses this way in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. It says, so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. So Stephen is saying, here's Moses. He's got all the knowledge that the greatest human empire up until this first uh, up until this time in history, has to offer. He was raised in Pharaoh's courts, all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was found powerful both in his speech and his actions. He was compassionate. He had a heart bent towards justice. He was strong. He was persuasive. He was wise. He was skilled. He was the man. So much so that we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, as Stephen is describing this scene of Moses confronting the two Hebrews that are fighting, this was how he described him, verse 25. He said, Moses assumed that his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. 
Stephen's describing not later in Moses' life, whenever he comes back to deliver him, he's describing this scene right here. In verse 26, he then retells this story of the Hebrews that didn't know that Moses was going to deliver them. So Moses somehow, I don't don't entirely know how, but Moses at this point in his life when he's 40 years old, he's walking around going, God's going to use me to deliver these people. And the people didn't see it, but Moses saw it. Moses was like, of course God's going to use me. I mean, here I am, a Hebrew, but I'm the prince of Egypt. I'm skilled in all the ways of the Egyptians. I'm powerful in speech and action. Of course it's going to be me. You look at the strength and the ability of Moses. There was no one, it seems like with human eyes, more primed to be able to free the nation than Moses, the great prince of Egypt, with all of his strength and all of his wisdom and all of his power. But what made that plan fail here in verses 11 through 15? Moses decided to take the plan into his own hands. He said, I've got this. He had waited for 40 years. It was time to do something. It was time to stop waiting and start start doing something. Maybe Moses knew the promise that God was free his people. And Moses just looked again at his life and assumed that God was going to deliver him through him. But regardless, Moses was done waiting. It was time to take matters into his own hands. And he steps in. And his plan here is kind of a dumb plan. To free the nation of Israel, you're going to go kill this one guy who's kind of a a sub-worker down here. That'll really do it. But regardless, it's what he does. His anger explodes. We see that come up for Moses a number of times in his life. And he steps in, and he takes matters in his own hands, and he tries to control. He tries to take it on himself. And what happens? The plan explodes. His murder gets found out. He knew it was wrong, right? You see that in the text? He looks around in verse 12, looking all around and seeing no one. He then attacks the Egyptian. You don't look around if you're about to do something great. Moses looking around going, okay, yep, nobody, okay, good. All right, yeah, now he's dead. He knew what he was doing was wrong, but he did it anyway. He's like, it's time. I'm taking matters in my own hand. The great prince of Egypt, the plan begins. But then the next day he finds out that word is out and uh, he's done in Egypt. Pharaoh's trying to kill him. Pharaoh's already upset with him as he had given up the wealth of Egypt to be able to be with his people. We see in Hebrews 11 describes that way. And Pharaoh was just looking for a way to get him. And now Moses had given him his chance. Moses had killed here this Egyptian and it had found out and Pharaoh was trying to kill him. And so Moses, verse 15, fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Moses had issues of control, wanting to take into his own hands. And friends, how much for us and whatever it is you're walking through, do we look at life and the uncertainty of life and we have the same impulse to want to take matters into our own hands, whatever it might be. I think, I think it's fair to say that everything in our life, we are either trusting God or we are trying to be God. Friend, what area of your life are you trusting God? In what areas of your life are you trying to be God? Taking matters into your own hands, whether it's your financial security, your future plans, your children's lives, your friendships, your current status, whatever it might be, where are you trusting God and where are you trying to be God? We need to be careful not to fall in the same trap that Moses did where we try to take matters in our own hands because it's there that plans fail. When we step into that 
idol of control and try to do it ourselves. So Moses actually wasn't ready. All the training in Egypt, all the strength of man, all the wisdom that he could have gotten wasn't preparation that he needed. He needed more. In fact, he needed something completely different. So what is it then that makes people prepared? If not the military tactics of the greatest human empire, if not all the political power of the greatest, uh, greatest king in Egypt, if not the compassionate heart of a just ruler, what prepares a person? Well, that's what we see in verses 16 to 22 in the second segment of Moses' life here in Midian. We see that what prepared Moses was the wilderness. Out here in the wilderness of Midian. He runs to Midian. He's got nothing but just sits down by a well. There's a lot of incredible things that happen by wells in the Bible. Can't get into it, but it's a great study. Just go through and look at all the incredible things God does next to a well. So eventually in verse 16, Moses is sitting there. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. He's like, this is it. I don't really know what I'm going to do. He's probably had a charmed life at this point, not had to work much for himself. He's got to now make his own living. He's got to find his own food. He's got to figure out how to wash his own clothes or how to make new ones. And he's sitting down by a well, doesn't have much hope. And then all of a sudden, these seven daughters stroll up. These pretty women come and stand next to Moses. And along with them in verse 17, some shepherds come and start to kind of taunt them, mock them, and then threaten them. And what do we see Moses do? It's the same thing he does again. His heart is bent towards justice and compassion. He can't just sit by and watch this happen. He steps in and he intervenes. He drives the shepherds, plural, away. Again, Moses was a bad dude. He steps in after just killing a man and now drives these shepherds away. And Moses comes to their rescue. And then he waters the flock of these seven women. Again, Moses looking around, he's probably like, okay, I ain't got much going for me, but hey, here's some pretty girls. Let me just do something here. And he steps in and he rescues them. Well, the girls then leave and go back home. They get back home to their dad, and what's their dad say? Hey, what are you doing back so early? They're like, well, we were in danger, and this man stepped in and saved us. And not only did he save us, but also, verse 19, this Egyptian um, drew water, and he watered the flock. He even watered the flock. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. You see in verse 20, they're like, uh, or in verse 19, he even did this, drawing water and watering the flock. That was a, a role that women did during that time period. So here this man not only saves them, but also steps in and serves them in a way that's unbelievable. And so what's the dad's response? Why did you leave them? Why didn't you bring them back? What are you thinking? What an awesome guy. Go and get them. Go back to them. And so they go back. Why didn't you leave, why did you leave them behind? Invite them to dinner. And so they go back, and Moses comes, marries this priest's son. They eventually have, or marries the priest's daughter. They have a son, Gershom. Yep, it's important to read from the Bible. Marries, <laughs> marries his daughter, has a son named Gershom, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. And you imagine decade after decade after decade, the dreams of grandeur that Moses had for his life surely eroded to nothing. He's in the middle of nowhere in a wilderness with a small little family as a shepherd now with a family. But these dreams of delivering a people from slavery, how could he go up against Egypt now? stuck in the wilderness. The dreams he had for his life were gone. 
But friends, what we see here is that God shows up to Moses, not at year 40 when Moses was at his strongest, but he shows up to Moses at year 80 when Moses was at his weakest. Why? Because God needed to prepare the man for his work. And how did God prepare him? Not with the courts of Egypt, not with military strategy, not with strength, but he prepared him with a wilderness. And friends, we see this again throughout the Bible. Just look at what God does for his people in the wilderness and how he uses that to prepare his people for incredible works. This is the place where God's people meet their God. It's in the wilderness that Jacob sees the stairway to heaven in Genesis 28. It's in the wilderness that Elijah hears the small, still voice of God in 1 Kings 19. It's in the wilderness that John the Baptist preaches repentance in Matthew 3. It's in the wilderness that Jesus was led there by the Spirit, it says, to be tempted by Satan. And he stood and defeated that temptation where Adam and Eve fell. And he succeeds where they failed. And he stood in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness that Saul, later becomes Paul, wrestles with the Old Testament and finds that it's all pointing to Jesus. For three years, Paul was in the wilderness, we see in Galatians 1. And it's in the wilderness that Hosea is led there and told that he will stop calling God master and he will start calling him husband. That his relationship with God is not one where he says, God, you say things, I will do it, you're, you're master, I will follow your commands. He said, no, you, you're my husband, you have loved me, you have initiated with me, you have pursued me, and in spite them of my obedience, you've actually come after me. And so because of your love, because of the relationship that you've committed to me, I then will live with obedience. It's in the wilderness that Hosea sees that. And it's here in the wilderness that Moses is prepared finally to go and do the work that God has for him. But we hate the wilderness. But friends, it's there in the wilderness, in those dark nights of the soul, as we walk through times of dryness and our dreams being dashed, that everything else is stripped away and we are forced to wrestle with this question. Is God really enough? All the idols, all the comforts, all our dreams, all our temptations stripped away and we're led into the wilderness. And it's there that we've got to wrestle. Is God really enough here? Or is he just a nice addition to a pretty comfortable life? It was, for me, kind of the, the shaking up point for me in my faith. I was 24 years old. Right before, a um, year before I was about to get married, Lee and I were engaged. And I got a phone call when I was up in seminary in North Carolina that my father had had a heart attack mowing the yard. And they were on the way to the hospital. But things didn't look good. And so I needed to come home. So I run back to my house, I'm packing up my suitcase, and on the way to the hospital, I get a, another phone call that he didn't make it. So it was sudden, it was out of nowhere, he was healthy. Um, and it was in that moment, for the first time in my life, up until that point, I'd had a fairly charmed life. Things were going good, I enjoyed high school, I enjoyed, even enjoyed middle school. Enjoyed college, great college experience, about to marry the girl of my dreams. Things were going great, I loved Jesus, was following him, was preparing for ministry. But there in that moment, for the first time, I was shaken with the question, is Jesus enough here? Can Jesus meet me here? Can Jesus make a difference here in this moment where it doesn't make sense for me 
whatever I'm seeing the carnage of the brokenness and sin of this world is bringing around me, can Jesus make a difference here? Because if he cannot, what kind of God is that? And I don't want to have anything to do with him. What kind of God would only make sense when life is going okay? I don't want to have anything to do with that. Give me a Jesus that can bend down next to me as I stand at the casket of my father and tell me that he knows how it feels, that cries with me and then promises to redeem all the pain in this world for my good and for his glory and one day come back and undo it all for his people, reversing every funeral, silencing every diagnosis, overcoming every abuse and righting every wrong, making all things new. Give me that Jesus the one that can meet me there in the wilderness, not the one that's just with a cup of coffee and a smile on my face as I'm on my way to work, but a Jesus that can meet me in the real brokenness of this world. Can that Jesus make a difference? For it was there in that moment that I began to realize for the first time exactly how much God loved me. And I began to realize for the very first time just how incredible heaven was going to be. I'd had a very comfortable life, and it kind of, if you asked me, I would have loved for Jesus to come back, but just wait until I do all the awesome things I got planned for my life. Just wait, Jesus. Hold on. I've got some things that I want to do. My life seemed more attractive than heaven. And there for the first time, God put a longing in my heart for him to come back. And he put a longing in my heart to see, Caleb, this will one day end. And for eternity, all that is broken will be undone and death will be no more. And all of the crying and all the pain will be wiped away. And you will have eternity with me, but it's not coming yet. And he put a longing in my heart to no longer now say, okay, just wait, Jesus. But for the first time, my prayer became, come, Lord Jesus, come now. I love the gifts that you've given me, but they are nothing compared to the day when I get to meet the giver. So would you come, come now? Because friends, it was there in the wilderness that I met that Jesus. It wasn't in a garden, it was in the wilderness. And so whether or not you make too much of a point of this, I don't know, but I'm gonna make it anyway. Adam and Eve fail, and when they fail to the, the enemy, they fell in a garden. When Jesus stood, he stood in the wilderness. Friends, God uses the wilderness to prepare his people. We want to do everything we can to push it away. I think especially just American kind of Western thinking, we want to push away pain and sorrow and brokenness and death. We don't want to deal with it. We've got medicine. We can elongate our lives. We've got the American dream. We're the most comfortable nation the world has ever seen. We love our lives. We want to push away death. But friends, do not push away potentially the instrument that God is using to prepare you for his work. In that wilderness, as he leads us there to be able to meet us there and prepare us for the work that he has. What makes a people prepared? It's not the courts of Egypt. It's the sands of the wilderness. And it was there that Moses was then ready. And God broke him to see, Moses, not in you that this is going to happen, but it's only through me. And so what makes all the difference? If our plans fail whenever we try to take them in our own hands, when we try to step in and control our lives, and we see we're prepared then as God uses the wilderness in our lives to prepare us as he did Moses, what then makes all the difference? Well, very simply put, what makes all the difference is God. You see this in verse 2. You have this beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. Beginning of the chapter, you have this person that is poised to overthrow 
Egypt and lead his people out. You could not have written a more perfect and powerful character than Moses to lead his people out of slavery. That's what we begin with. But that wasn't good enough. What did we need? We needed verses 23 to 25. The king of Egypt dies. Moses can now return, not as a criminal, but as a deliverer. The Israelites continue to groan because of their difficult labor. They cried out. But here, we see their cries weren't just out to nowhere. Their cries were directed. And they cried for help. Their cries weren't just from pain. Their cries were directed at God saying, God, would you do something now? And they cried for help because of the difficult later labor. And that cry ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw and God knew. At the beginning of the chapter, you have Moses. And all his wisdom, all his power, all his strength. It wasn't good enough. Here at the end of the chapter, for the first time now in the book of Exodus so far, God's name is interjected. And now things are about to start happening. He didn't need Moses' strength. He has himself. That's all that he needs. And so what we see then is God's motive for activation, for now stepping into this story of oppression to deliver then his people. We see two things that the author, that Moses here, shows us, brings God into this story. The first is we see it's prayer. It's our prayer. It was their cries for help. That was the thing that ascended to God's ear. God hears it. We see that God sees the Israelites. Not only does he hear their prayer, he hears their cry. He also sees what they're doing. Friends, God sees every single one of the cries, hurts, pains, and oppressions of his people in this life. There is no pain in your life that God does not see. And not only does he see it, but he also hears then your cry for help. And more than that, we see then that God knew. That word knew and knowing in the Bible, it, it expresses the most intimate of relationships between people. Now, you, you read Adam and Eve knew one another and they had a son. There was, again, the things that happened there. The expression was that it shows the most intimate relationship that a man and woman can have. It's not just one of physical pleasure. It's one of intimacy and knowledge, of being one flesh, of being naked and unashamed with one another, this intimacy and God then here knows intimately his people as he knows what's going on in them. There's this relationship that's expressed. God is not just afar hearing these prayers and seeing it happen. He knows his people. He loves his people. He's promised them to deliver his people, and he's there alongside him. God heard, God saw, and God knew. Prayer made a difference. Friends, prayer makes a difference in our lives. Prayer changes things. You say, well, if God knows everything, then how could our prayer, then, should we change God's mind? Is that what's going on? Listen, no, I, I don't know how it all works. He's God. I'm not. Again, great question that you can ask him when you get to heaven. But what I see throughout the Bible is that prayer changes things. Now, he already knows. He ordains the means. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it, got it. Here's the message we need to know. Prayer changes things. It was the prayer of his people that he heard, the compassion in his heart as he saw, and the intimate relationship as he knew that then activated God to step into this story. Our prayer matters. And you say, well, Caleb, that's great, but I pray about stuff all the time and nothing happens. God tells me, pray, 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 and then nothing happens. Uh, there's a, a pastor in New York, I think, that sums it up well. His name's Tim Keller. He was 
recently diagnosed with an aggressive stage four pancreatic cancer. And they're in the process of treatment right now um, and not sure where it's going to go. But he describes prayer this way. Again, somebody walking through suffering and is praying a lot for his healing. Here's what Tim Keller understands prayer to be. He says that in prayer, God will either give us what we ask for or he would give us what we would have, what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Friends, underneath that is the, is the confidence to know that we can trust in a God who knows everything, who's sovereign over everything, who is powerful, but also is good. If we can trust his heart, then we pray, and God has called us to pray, and our prayers make a difference. But there are times when the answer to that prayer is no. And when that happens, we submit then to trust God and say, God, I don't know what you're doing here. But I know if I knew everything that you knew, that I would have gone through the same thing, knowing that this is all rolling up to a greater story, not just of your glory. I'm not just a pawn for you to get glory, but you're also working it for my good. And I will have eternity with you to see then what you're doing this whole time. Friends, our prayers make all the difference. That's why the most powerful thing in this story in chapter 2 was not the strength of Moses. It was the prayer of his people. Again, we say it all the time, prayer is not a last resort. It is our first response. It's the most powerful thing that we see in chapter 2. Even with the right man in the right political position, the people of Israel were helpless unless God intervened. Is that not a good lesson for us to know right now in our country, where our strength comes from? It's not in whatever we might want to see happen in politics. It might not be whatever we want to see happen in our own lives. The most, the greatest thing that you can do for this country and your life is to pray. Do we believe that? Or do we want to take matters into our own hands? It's a little bit easier to try to control. But God has called us to pray. But prayer isn't the only thing that makes a difference in this passage. Yes, God heard, God saw, and God knew. But God did something else. God also here in verse 24 remembered. And he remembered what? He remembered his covenant. His covenant promise to Abraham. Friends, our prayer makes a difference, but so does his promise. The confidence we can have in his promises to us make all the difference in the world. As God has stepped into the story and made a promise, a covenant, a never stopping, never giving up kind of love to his people that says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm entering into the story. I'm redeeming it. And one day I will come and make it all new. Is that all of that, all the action of God, all the hope of his people are founded not in what we will want, but on what God has promised. So our prayers then and his promise is what come together here in 23 through 25 that has God then step into this story to redeem his people. He had promised Israel earlier in Genesis 15 that he would deliver them. After 400 years, he had promised Abraham that he would have descendants that would outnumber the stars and that he would give them a land. God had a promise to keep and he shows up and he does just that as he steps into the story. And that promise that he makes to Israel, the promise isn't founded on how great or impressive Israel is. God doesn't look, he didn't look at the world in the Old Testament and go, okay, let's see, who do we want? Egypt, they got a lot going for them. They got a big economic structure, huge army. They've got chariots. I'm gonna make a covenant with them. I could really use them and their strength. You know, look around later on and go, okay, here's Babylon. They've got some issues. But goodness, look at the hanging gardens. 
That's so cool. I'll make a covenant with him. Imagine all the incredible things that we can make together as me, creative God who's created all of this, can work with these people. Oh, it's going to be great. They are awesome. I'm going to make a promise with them. Why did God choose Israel? Friends, maybe a more poignant question is this. Why did God choose you? Was it because of something you had to offer him? Did he look around the world and go, oh, there's, oh, there's that guy. Boy, I could really use him. He fits a piece I just don't have, and he's going to be able to a great addition to the team. It's like God's at the playground during recess, and he's picking his dodgeball team. Okay, he's got a good arm. Yep, you, first pick. You, you're good to go. You're don't, not a good arm, but you're ambidextrous, so they don't know where you're going to be coming from. You're going to be a great addition to the team. You can't throw or catch, but you're nimble and like five foot two, so they're not going to hit you. Great, you are on our, my team. And God's picking these people based on their skill, their strength, their power, or how impressive they may be. Is that how God chooses Israel? Is that how God chose us? Or friends, it can be further from the truth. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, again written by Moses here after the Exodus, describes it this way. If you don't have that, just write this down. Come back to this verse all the time. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8 says, The Lord has his heart set on you. He's talking to the people of Israel. The Lord has his heart set on you, and he chose you. Not because you were more numerous than all the peoples. Uh, for you were actually the fewest of all the peoples. So I love that point that Moses makes here. He's like, listen, God didn't set his heart on you and choose you because you were awesome. In fact, you were like super not awesome. That was you. Why did the Lord set his heart on you? Why does the Lord love you? Here's the answer in verse 7. Because the Lord loved you. And he kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does the Lord love you? Because the Lord loves you. There is nothing in you that draws or earns his love and affection. It springs and flows from himself. He loves you because he loves you. Because there's no real good answer to that question. If you find the reason for God's love, you found the wrong reason. Oh, he loves me because I'm this. He loves me because I've done this. Or he loves me because of all the things that I can offer him. Friends, none of that is true. He loves you because he loves you. He has set his heart on you because he loves you. No freedom that's in that then is that there's nothing that you have done to earn his love. There's nothing you can do to lose his love. That's where the security lies. You don't have to walk through your relationship with God going, oh, man, it's been a bad month. I hadn't been to church, hadn't been reading my Bible, been saying things I shouldn't have been able to say, driving down Highway 50. What's he think of me? Friends, it was never in you that God loved you in the first place. And so there's nothing you do to lessen his love for you. There is freedom in that kind of commitment. And that's why marriages reflect that kind of relationship with God and his people. The marriage isn't a contract that's based on how funny you might be or how you make me feel or all the uh, flurry, fuzzies, rainbows, and butterflies. But once that falls, once I fall out of love with you, I might fall in love with someone else. It's contractual based on what you can do for me. Friends, that is not marriage. That's not a biblical marriage. A biblical marriage is a covenant that reflects this kind of relationship that says, I'm going to love you because I love you. And there will be good times and there will be bad. There will be easy times and there will be hard. There will be rich times and there will be poor. But it doesn't matter because I'm not going anywhere. 
and I will love you because I love you. And there are times in which that covenant's broken, as we see in the New Testament. But for so many, we view marriage as a contract we can enter and exit out of based on how the other person makes us feel. And we can sometimes import that into our understanding of how God has made a commitment to us. It's contractual based on what we can do for him or how we make, how he makes us, how we make him feel. But friends, it is based not on your performance, but on his promise, on his covenant. And so God looks at his people and he hears them cry out. And he remembers the promise that he made. And he steps in and he makes all the difference. What do you have at the beginning of the chapter? Moses, all the strength. What do you have at the end? A stuttering exile. But God says, now, Moses, now you're ready. There's nothing intrinsic in Israel or in Moses that drew God to them. He chose them. They were actually remarkably unimpressive, just like you and I. And the difference from Moses, as we'll see at the beginning of the chapter, he's assuming that he's going to deliver his people because he's probably thinking, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Again, God would choose me. I'm kind of awesome, kind of a big deal. You're welcome, God. I'm on your team. Let's do it. Time to make a difference. But at the end of the chapter, you then get into chapter 3 where God says, Moses, he speaks to him from the burning bush. We'll look at it next week. Moses, I'm going to take you and go to Israel. I would go to Egypt and free the Israelites. You know Moses' response then? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses had gone from pride, self-confidence, and control to humility, inability, and dependence. And God says, now you're ready. Because now my power can be made perfect in your weakness. You see, throughout chapter 2 here, God actually needed to deconstruct Moses' strength before he was ready because it was never dependent on Moses' ability in the first place. It was always God. Moses doesn't march into Egypt with an elaborate military strategy that he learned in the courts of Egypt. He didn't waltz in with a plethora of more sophisticated weapons to arm an enslaved nation and overthrow an impressive regime. But how then does the difference be made? Moses limps in with a stutter and a stick and he delivers God's people because it was never Moses in the first place. All the difference was made not in his strength, not in refined abilities or not in his attempts to control his own life. The difference is made whenever God steps in. Friends, in our lives, in your life, what are you trusting God in and where are you trying to be God? Where are you relying on your strengths, your abilities, maybe the competencies that God has given you? And where are you trusting and relying on God? Because friends, listen, God doesn't need your impressiveness either. He has himself. God wants broken vessels. He wants jars of clay. People like Moses that say, who am I to make a difference in this world? And God will go, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Why? Because it's there in that confession of weakness and inability that his power is perfected and his glory is revealed and his grace is seen really as sufficient. This is what Paul understands in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. It says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. It really is because my power is perfected in weakness. 
So here's then Paul's application of that. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may reside in me. Paul knows it's at the point of weakness that God moves most powerfully because that's who God is after. Why? Because he deserves the glory and not us. It was the king of Israel, not the prince of Egypt, that deserved the glory in Exodus. The story of the rest of Exodus has nothing to do with all the incredible things Moses does. We'll see. Here's what Moses does. He shows up and throws his staff on the ground. He walks to the edge of the water and throws his staff at the edge of the water. And all of a sudden the water parts. He then goes up to Sinai and comes back down with two tablets. Moses isn't doing anything. This is not the story of Moses versus Pharaoh. This is the story of God versus Pharaoh. And God deserves the glory. And so it's in Moses' weaknesses that Christ's power then resides in him. And so here's Paul's final takeaway in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. So because that is true, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, difficulties. And I would like to add that he takes pleasure in the wilderness. For the sake of Christ. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, what do you rely on? Are you trying to avoid the wilderness? Are we willing to walk forward as God's preparing us in maybe a season that we don't understand? We can cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 130 and say, Lord, out of the depths, I call to you. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. But here's what we'll do in the wilderness. We'll say, God, but I will wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6. I will wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. I rely, Lord, on you and on your promises and on your word. That's where my confidence is. Not in my abilities, not in my feeble attempts to control my life, but to step back and see my weakness and even if we're walking through a wilderness, say, Lord, I will wait for you. I'm calling to you from the depths. Would you hear me? But until you hear me, until you act, I will wait for you because I will trust and put my hope and rely on your word. Friends, we stop trying to be God and we stop trying to control our lives and taking matters into our own hands. We trust the goodness and promises of God and rely on his words and not our strength. And for some of you, friends, God has given you some remarkable gifts. I know you. You're some of the most competent people that I've ever met. It's incredible. But friends, that very gifting and competency may be the very thing that's keeping you from a deeper relationship with God and experiencing the fullness of his power in your life. Because you're relying on it and not on him. Will you wait? Or will you operate according to your timetable? Will you allow him to prepare and shape you? Or will you avoid with everything you can to... Stay away from the wilderness. Will you call to him? Or will you keep trying to do it yourself? Friends, today will you trust him? Will you rely on him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, the fact that you are a God who created us. And even when we rebelled, you didn't just say, all right, fine. They want it that way. Have at it. But Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you're a God who stepped into the story, who stepped into the brokenness, who has spoken to us and made promises to us to be able to give us real hope, to show us that the wilderness is never wasted, that our pain is never wasted. Lord, that you're using it all 
not just for your glory, but also for our good. Lord, you're shaping and forming and preparing us to be able to be used in your great story. So God, would you give us hope and would you help us to trust and rely fully on your word and help us to be able to wait, to wait for you as we trust in you and your character and your promise. We pray all this in Christ's name.